Good afternoon. This is Dr. Brent Turvey, and I am once again here with my friend and colleague, Dr. Doctor, not cool. Dr. That has a nice ring to it. <laughs> it, I was, it, was, it felt like it was going to get there, but I was thinking of Aurelio, and now my forensic investigator, Melanie Inglis. Forensic investigator extraordinaire. Extraordinaire. Yeah. This is a... This is a very important podcast. I think they're all equally important on some level to some people, but this has more national and international uh, reach and relevance than a lot of the stuff that we tend to do. And it's, uh, I hate having to talk about this subject, but I think we need to. This week, we're going to talk about uh, mass shootings and, and incel culture, and also the responsibility of law enforcement in these contexts, conditions, and investigations. And it's not, it's a, I will tell you right now out of the gate that I have, I have investigated and testified in multiple mass shooting cases. Um, just because I get hired on a case doesn't mean I wind up testifying. Not every case I do an investigation, not every case I do an analysis, not every case I do a testimony. But I've been hired to examine a lot of these cases over the years, including um, I did some work on the James Holmes theater shooting case in a civil context and uh, did, did some reconstruction and criminal profiling work on that. And I've done quite a number of uh, probably five or six, maybe as many as seven family killings or mass shootings in a, in a domestic context. So, and we're seeing more of these kinds of mass shooting cases. And there's a lot of confusion about it. Tell me about your, not I want to say background, but sort of your, your sort of where you draw your knowledge from when you come from these cases. I know you're relatively... You're a lot less experienced than me, obviously, but you have your own take and experience with these subjects. And I'm just curious, where, what are the spaces where you've encountered this formally? Because not, not, not everybody does. But there's not many still, like not for me, as I'm still early in the career and in my journey. I'm honestly being introduced to a lot of it now. I would hear about it, of course. It, you know, we would hear about it on the news and things like that. But um, in Canada... It's not that it doesn't happen. Um, it's not publicized a lot when it does happen. And there's not a lot of education on it because it's more of a, a states thing, right? United States, it's happening all the time there. So this is a lot of it I'm still learning. But there, there's another part, there's a dimension to it that we talk about a lot, which is that despite the fact that this kind of crime doesn't happen a lot in Canada, there are a lot of men in Canada who have very strong opinions in these areas and in affected areas, right? Men have a lot of strong opinions on everything. Oh, shit. Oh, so soon. We're so early into the conversation. It's you're you're, you're very you're very right. Men. Uh, Aurelio likes to say to me sometimes, he goes, oh, man, I wish I had your confidence. I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, you have all the confidence of a white man. You have all the confidence of a white American. You are so confident. And that's and a lot of men have that belief like they're whatever space they're in whatever conversation is happening between whatever vulnerable groups or not, they believe theirs is the voice that needs to be heard. That's and right. That, that's the basis of what mansplaining, right? Absolutely. And talking about that kind of situation when, when the man is in a position of power, say I'm not, not speaking about law enforcement right now, even in the school system, if they're high yeah. up in the school system, I just went through this. I had a long conversation with a principal at my eldest daughter's school yeah. And I brought up the shootings because we were talking about these types of things. We were talking about race and divide and all of these situations. And I asked him what he did at his school w in reference to the shootings that have occurred. Yeah. What he did to the 50% of the population of that school that is visible minority. What he did to 
Did he talk about it? Did, did he ask if they feel safe? Did he want to educate them? And all he said was, you're right, I did nothing. <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, that's easier. It's easier to do nothing. That's the... He said, it's just, it doesn't affect me. Okay. What? All right. That's the that's the uh, the line that I get from really all the time too. It's actually very it's very important to recognize that when you say everything's fine, what you mean is everything's fine for you. And right. that's what having actual empathy is. That's why the human rights perspective is so important because it's not about you. If you're fine, okay. If there's a terrible thing happening on the planet, whether it's a mass shooting, starvation, racism, mm -hmm. uh, sexual exploitation, if there's something happening on the planet, and you say, well, I'm fine. It doesn't affect me. That's called privilege. That's right. It's your privilege. You're, you have a, a, a level of privilege that separates you from this terrible, these terrible things that are going on. And th there, but that there might be many layers of privilege, or there might be just one, and you remove one, and all of a sudden you're right in the mix. And the and inability to see that is the problem, I think. People do not like that term. When you say privilege and people have no idea what what it actually is, we've talked about this before, but I, because I used it recently with that principle, he was very offended. He thought I was saying something extremely negative to him, but well, but anyway, he got really offended with saying that I'm not I'm not privileged. I'm like, are you a white male? Then are you, yes, you are. Then you are because you're not getting sexually harassed. You're not having your pay lowered. You're not being expected to in every context to pretend like you're sexually available to no. keep a man from being upset with you. Uh, and but the color of your skin does not prevent people from giving you bank loans or assistance, even That's the most right. courtesy, you know? So yeah, you have privilege. So you, yeah. And we all know that. Yeah. Uh, well, the thing is white men don't like it because they get angry at the notion that they have, that they're not there in the space that they're in because of their ability. They, they want to pretend that there's some natural gift or ability they have that makes them special. That's the, the belief that you don't have privilege is this very racist notion that comes from people who are trying to promote their own, their identity as being special mm -hmm. or independent or every, they did everything on their own. They didn't. You have. No. You, and you know what the number one response I get mostly from white men when we talk about privilege is mm -hmm. I worked my ass off to get to where I am today. That's probably true. We're not talking about that. <laughs> yeah, that's probably true. We all work our asses off. That's not the question. The question is, despite having worked their asses off, many people who do the same amount of work don't even get the, even a quarter of the pay. That's right. <laughs> the hardest working person is not the person who gets the most privilege or the most uh, rewards. It's the that's one right. who's white. <laughs> that's right. So uh, let's talk. We, so we've encountered this issue, and this issue is related to a lot of things. You cannot separate mass shootings from the reappropriation by radical extremists of the Second Amendment in the United States. You can't separate that from racism. You can't separate it from the Klan. And you can't separate it from religion. All these things are bound together. And that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to, I imagine, offend a lot of people. But this is what history does. This is the big issue is historically, we don't, well, there's a whole movement right now to deny history, to get people to not read books, uh, not look at history, and not examine what the United States was and how it became what it is and the relationship between people. We're going to talk about that, but let's first talk about mass shootings and what they are. There's, there's two concepts here, mass shootings and mass killings. They are in my mind, if you are separating those things out, then you are playing a little game. You're playing a little game to, to play with the numbers because you want to make it about a numbers game. The issue is what, what, what constitutes a mass shooting? Well, everybody has their own kind of definition, but it's usually three or four, either three or four or more 
people being shot at. And for example, in the Harvest Festival, there were quite a few victims, but there were also like almost 10 times more people that were actually injured. And the reason that people, the people are surviving now, my good buddy Paul Cialino wrote a book about this, um, about the emergency trauma care system in the United States. And the guy who revolutionized it out of Chicago, I can't remember his name right now, but you can go look it up. Basically, we are way better at treating gunshot wounds now. The more that we've been through lots of wars, well, a lot of our surgeons have a lot of experience with, um, with gunshot wound victims. So a gunshot wound is no longer a death sentence in the United States. So this idea that if he didn't kill a certain number of people, then it's not as bad. Well, yeah, that's completely fake. That's completely false. If there's somebody shooting a lot of, of, of bullets at a bunch of targets, that's a mass shooting as far as I'm concerned. I don't care if anybody dies or not, because it's possible to save all those people as long as they don't get shot in the head or in a major artery or a major necessary organ. And even then, it's not necessarily a death sentence. So we are better now at saving people who have been shot. And that keeps the death count down. So the death toll being down is a red herring to the notion that it, we're getting less violent. There's a, that's another thing. Aurelia and I were looking this up. There's a constant state uh, uh, refrain in the United States. Oh, homicides are down. Violent crime is down. No, homicides are down. But the shooting deaths, the shooting, the shooting themselves are up. People getting shot is up. It's the, it's the killing that's down. <laughs> and that's because we have really good doctors in the United States who are saving lives and have a lot of experience with, with uh, gunshot wounds. So this, this is the issue with me. I have this problem with using numbers of a death count or a shooting count. If you've got a person firing into a group of people, that to me is a mass shooting. I don't, I, I, it's a, if they're firing into a target rich environment, what say you on this and what experience, what, how has this issue come up for you? Cause I had it come up with people trying to minimize the crimes themselves or pretend that somehow this is an exaggeration of what's going on. I find that a lot of people, um, they do, they do think that people have to die, right? So they think that it has to be a high number of people who have died during this shooting situation. Yeah. Um, that can, that's considered then a mass shooting to most people. I agree with you where if you're shooting into a crowd of people or into a, a bunch of different people, like not necessarily a crowd, but in a a store or something like that and you're going around and you're shooting at a bunch of people that absolutely constitutes a mass shooting in my opinion. Yeah. But I mean, have you found a resistance to that notion in the people that you talk to? Okay. So there's a, there's a big difference between the people you talk to and the people here because the people here don't believe that they believe it because they see it, right? They believe it. They see it on the news. They hear about it, but they do not believe that it exists to a certain point because the most resistance I get is, well, we don't, I'm so glad we'll never have to deal with that here. Huh. Now there are in the schools they have implemented, you know how we used to have tornado drills and fire drills. Well, now we also have a lockdown yeah. drill in the school, um, which is new, right? That's something that didn't exist here for a very long time. You're um, <laughs> thanks. But there's an opportunity there to also explain to the students and educate and, and start to learn some history about mass shootings and things that are happening. And that's just, they don't, it, the kids are just like, why are we doing this? I don't understand who has the gun. Where is it coming from? There's, there's no knowledge. There's no education, but the resistance here is people don't believe that it'll ever happen here. So it doesn't matter. Basically 
right. just like, oh, that's unfortunate. People died, but um, what's going on tomorrow? So you don't, so there is no acknowledgement that it's actually no. a problem. or that the, only, actually- the only time there was an acknowledgement was that article that I sent to you. So after the shootings happened, the most recent shootings happened that were very public in the U.S., we had someone walk down a street near an elementary school in Toronto and he was holding what looked like an assault rifle of some sort and the police were called and they promptly killed him like he they just that was the end of it for this person now the articles i've seen after the fact was it was a pellet gun or i'm assuming that's what yeah not paintball it was a pellet gun um so people were very frightened and all of a sudden really aware and it was everywhere. Like people were sobbing and it was all over TikTok. If you don't think it can happen here, it was very dramatic. And then when they were like, oh, it was just a pellet gun, false alarm. Yeah, don't worry about it. So just to, to clear up what I said before, I looked it up because I wanted to make sure I was right about this. 61 deaths at the Harvest Festival in Las Vegas and 867 wounded. 411 of those people were wounded by gunfire. So, but a lot of the other people were trampled. But what I wanted to say is this was a moment for me in time that was very strange. Aurelio and I were actually in Las Vegas and uh, we had just done a profiling workshop. Uh, And the, a good friend of mine, uh, he's run, his son runs the security, is a a concierge at the Mandalay Bay. And they offer, we, we, we were going to stay a couple extra days and they offered us a, um, a room and they gave us a room that was a suite on the edge of the on the edge of the of the uh, hotel, and it was one floor below the the shooter, one floor below him, and he checked in the day we checked out with all of his guns. And so when they when they were talking about the room, I actually had known the exact room because I had the same blueprint, the same carpet, the same hallways, the same everything, just one floor down. And we had been ironically, Aurelio and I were talking about mass shootings because one had just happened, and he said, "Why isn't there a mass shooting in Vegas?" And I said, "It could never happen." Because everybody knows Vegas is a place for commerce. Vegas is a place where you don't come to shoot people. Vegas is a place where it's like Singapore. Everybody from all over the world comes to spend their money. And the police have everything locked down really good. And the security is really good. The reputation is very good and blah, blah, blah. Turns out that all is smoke and mirrors. I fall into the same trap as everybody else. I watch the movies. And I think that the way that Hollywood depicts Vegas is the way that Vegas is in real life. In real life, Vegas has felons for people working security. People who have people who have low jacks on their ankles are working in security with uh, suits that don't fit them. That's how bad it is right now in Vegas. They have no idea. Their security might as well be non-existent. They're there to essentially ensure that money keeps flowing in and people who are causing a disturbance get removed. But the money comes in the form of not just gambling, but there are shit tons of gun shows there. So people are constantly bringing in um firearms and in the, the the harvest festival shooting they actually used the freight elevator to bring up they did something like 27 loads in the freight elevator of all the guns he used he used uh what did he have he had he had a an ar-15 obviously a 308 ar-10 308 bolt action rifle 38 caliber pistol and he also had and he was doing what was called parabolic uh sniping he basically he was he had calculated the distance and you have to, the, the bullet doesn't actually work like a going a straight shot when you're firing at that great of a distance. So he's doing a parabolic uh, examination of the trajectory so that he could do a calculation, fire into the air and the bullets would fall on people. Then he was doing, and that's why they couldn't figure out where he was coming from because he's not firing right at them and the echoes that were all around. Anyway, the point is 
he had planned it out very well and everybody watched him do it and nobody stopped him. And he was gambling. He was playing the slots and playing like thousand dollar slot machines. He was, he was a crazy situation, but it really pulled back the veil on what was possible and the capability of law enforcement to respond to this. And that brings us to the historical question. There have been enough mass shootings now that enough of the industries related, what we're talking about, uh, hotels, schools, arenas, um, hospitals, um, any other, any workplace in general, there is a notion that a mass shooting is possible. And law enforcement has all been receiving all this training about mass shooting that's supposed to immediately click in and engage when this goes on. And I'm not talking about, oh, they went to a seminar. No, we're pouring millions of dollars. In. This is a big fundraising thing for law enforcement, not just in terms of the training that they get, but in terms of the equipment that they're getting. They're getting ex better equipment. They're getting better body armor. They're getting better uh, uh, ballistic shielding. They're getting, uh, they're getting better training. They're getting better, uh, better federal cooperation, uh, better tactical gear. This all is because of, this, of these shootings that they're anticipating. And that, for me, was a moment in time when I realized, oh, my God, we haven't learned anything. We have not, not only have we not learned anything, but the people that are responsible for responding, they don't know how to respond to this stuff. So that, that to me sets the stage for the law enforcement response. And what did we have in the last three weeks? We had two, or excuse me, we've, we've had over the last month or so, we've had three major mass shootings and, and a bunch of smaller ones that are still terrible. Well, what I'm talking about ones that are, you know, over to over the, over the 10 body count. And what we are seeing is not only just the terrible, terrible uh, motivations behind some of these crimes, but the completely inept, completely negligent, completely horrifically, almost cowardly response from law enforcement in the, in the, in the live situation. Um, tell me what you were thinking about your perspective of law enforcement's ability to respond to these things before uh, the events of the last month or so. Well, before mm -hmm. I saw what was actually occurring, I figured that they would, um, do their job, um, go in, stop the shooter, try to do something at least. But as I'm seeing, they're as scared as everyone standing outside the buildings. Mm -hmm. They're not doing anything. They're just, they're just standing there and waiting for it to stop. I had this assumption that they were police officers. They would get ready. They would get on their gear and they would go in and stop the situation, stop the threat, right? That's right. Um, but that's unfortunately not happening. Not at all. Um... And the other thing that we're seeing now more, and this is a great feature of a, of a blowback from the Trump presidency, is we're seeing more racism as a motivation. There was, people forget that it wasn't just about, but we have we the one in Buffalo that was obviously, this guy was very racist and this guy had a very, very racist set of motivations. He targeted a black community, targeted a black, uh, a black, a, a black neighborhood, but a place where black people went to go get groceries inside this obviously economically isolated food desert where there's no other places to go. He did that on purpose, but there are other ones that have happened as well. Like uh, in, um, in California at the garlic festival, not too long ago, there was a guy who went there to, sh to shoot Hispanics. That's in the place where I used to live. I used to live in that area in a place called Watsonville, right down the road from the garlic festival. And the, that area is 95% Latino. 95%. Now, let me explain something. This is something really important for people to understand that I don't think they do in the United States, especially when we're talking about um, 
we're talking we're talking about Hispanics first. The Hispanic community, they were here first. That is the important thing to remember. On the southern border states, they are not foreigners. They were here first. These were territories that were taken from Mexico by the United States in, in different contexts, right? But the Mexicans that live there, their families have been there way before there were white people. And that is something that in the United States, we don't seem to have a very good grasp of. We think it was always all white. The reason we think that is because everything we see in movies and television uh, starting uh, from, the, from the earliest days is depicting white people as the primary leader race, all right, in the United States, the European version of white people, <laughs> all right? That's the first thing. Second thing is black people. Uh, the black people that are here, obviously a lot of them came because of, were, were basically kidnapped and sold into slavery, but the moment that the slaves got the right to vote is the moment when there was a swing back towards the Klan. The Klan had a resurgence. Why? Because you have all these black people who can vote. They now can impose their will on white people in the South because there are more of them. There are always more black people than white people in the South. Always. So what's the problem? The problem is the structural racism to prevent black people from voting. And they didn't do it by being mean to them and posting mean things on Facebook. They did it with organized lynchings, burning down churches, ex public executions, uh, shootings, uh, dis destroying businesses. This is what the Tulsa riots were about. This is what the, or the Tulsa massacre rather was about. This is what every lynching is about. It's about a message to the black community to keep your place. And it's what Confederate war memorials were. Most people think Confederate war memorials were put there after the Civil War. No, they weren't. They were put there in response in the, 40, in the 50s and the 60s in response to the civil rights movement by the Daughters of the Confederacy, which is just another arm of the Klan. What I keep seeing over and over again is the influence of the Klan on these conversations and in these contexts. So this idea that, uh, that we are, the white, the white people were the first people here, the white people were the, the white people are the dominant race, that white people should have more power and privilege and authority and have more representation. It's a fantasy uh, because I haven't even mentioned the third group. I'm so racist. I haven't even mentioned the third group, which is the indigenous population, <laughs> because I always think of that as an afterthought. I'm a terrible person in that way. I, I, I just because we have so because we have uh, Israeli reminds me all the time. They're a conquered people. We've put them on reservations and they're we're slowly destroying their culture with uh, what with government housing and government schools and that kind of stuff. So since banning, let's here we go. Derek Griffin. Uh, anyway, before we respond to Derek, let's ask your let's respond to what I've just said, because I know I've said a lot, but it's very to me, there's a history there that can't be denied that has been being denied for a long time. Uh, yeah, I was going to make the point that when you just said about um, people believing that it was just white people. Right. We were here first in Canada. It's um, that's a battle between the white people and indigenous. Right. So if you talk to anyone here, they get very very upset when you mentioned that it was their land first and we've taken everything away from them and we've put them in these places um and it, like we've done that to them but nobody wants to acknowledge any of that that's the no. conversation that's had here a lot that's why this is why the concept of critical race theory has made people so angry because what they really what they think you're going to be critical of my race no stupid person a critical <laughs> race theory means we look at how racial tensions have and the racial conflict has been has risen and fallen over time and how what the effect that has had on society for example kidnapping and imprisoning and enslaving an entire culture of people 
that's something that we need to talk about because all the money and land that we all have as white people came because of the human misery that we were that we exploited, whether it be uh, Hispanics, black people or indigenous people. Nothing and, that we have today was possible yeah. without that exploitation. And like we mentioned, we well, everyone was very aware of the things that were happening when um, in Canada here, when they were finding all of the bodies yeah. in the residential schools. Um, but nobody it's just it's such a difficult conversation because nobody wants to understand that the education system is just pushing it out as much as they can they that research that brought a lot to the surface again right um a, a lot of people kept it hid and we didn't talk about it a lot then it was resurfaced and then all of a sudden guess what they're pushing it back out again where they're not educating anybody on any of the history that happened here the reason why now this is a very specific reason the people who are in charge, who, who go into the school system, they sit on boards of education, they get involved at the educational level. It's very often from a religious perspective. Right. They're motivated by religious reasons to be where they're at because their public service is not about public service. It's about uh, their, their need to push their religious or moral agenda on society or their religious or moral beliefs. This becomes a very big problem when they have to reconcile the fact with the with the church's very deliberate, cozy, and um, exploitative relationship with the clan. So anybody who's got any religion in them whatsoever and has a religious history in their family, they don't want you looking back because if you look back, you're going to find the clan, you're going to find lynchings, you're going to find um, hate crimes, you're going to find hate speech, you're going to find them excluding, especially Protestants. They're, they go after the, the Klan is essentially a Protestant organization against Jews, Hispanics, um, Catholics, uh, all, all the people that the Protestants felt were inferior. And the same thing. And by the way, I was raised Protestant and the Catholics do the same thing back in the same way. They do the same stuff. Now, the modern day version of this is the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers, which are just Second Amendment gun nuts with this racial purity idea in mind. And they don't even mean race. What they mean is class. They want to they want a class of mm -hmm. people. They want to rise above this. They think they're better than these other people. And this brings us straight to the incel question. What's the I want to address Derek's question before we talk about incels, okay? So Derek Griffith asks, since banning bump stocks has the has it's made a significant impact on the mass shootings in America, has this made any difference at all? Okay, so what he's talking about is a bump stock is a thing that you put on a, a firearm. That allows you to turn it from a fully uh, from a semi-automatic, which shoots one shot, to uh, something that will let three shots fly at once. And a, a lot of guns have this feature on it, where you can go from semi-automatic, one shot at a time, boom, 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 or you can switch it to a three-round burst, the military version of that. Uh, bump stock is one way of ensuring that you can actually that it pulls the trigger back only so far, and you get the you get that three-round burst really fast. It's an, it's it's designed. It basically, all it does is it turns a semi-automatic weapon into a not a fully automatic weapon, but a, but close enough. Now, here's the thing. Um, <laughs> you can have the same, you can do the same effect with, by taping pennies behind the trigger. <laughs> That's not that difficult to convert any <laughs> firearm into a semi-automatic one. If you heat up the loads by putting more powder in it and then just tape some pennies behind the, the, the trigger, not difficult. Uh, I was learning this stuff when I was a teenager. That was just cool stuff you could do. But Let's talk about specifically banning the bump stock, which was not a bad idea. The problem is that's closing the door, the barn door after the horses have escaped. Mm -hmm. Okay, we're done. The the bump stocks have already. What, so when you ban something, this is 
the, I, I had this conversation with my buddy, Paul Celino. He and I both have collected firearms our whole lives. He's got way more than me, but I, but I have a lot. Uh, but he said to me, he goes, you got to be careful with this. This is all this gun control stuff. It's a slippery slope. You know, it's very slippery. And I'm like, well, what do you mean? He's like, well, because they're, they'll, those, those left nut, those left wing nut jobs, they'll come for your guns. And I said, you know, Paul, that's never been true. <laughs> the left has never come for guns. They might ban certain things, but the guns that have been made and they're making millions a year, millions of firearms a year in the U.S. and Eastern Europe, they're already being sold. They already exist inside of the country. The same is true with bump stocks and extended magazines. I'll give you a very basic economics lesson here, how it works. The biggest friend that the NRA ever has, ever, is a uh, left-wing or a left-leaning or a Democratic president because they're going to ban stuff. Why is this good? Because what happens when you ban something? You don't ban it today. You say, okay, the ban is going to take effect in 2023. So that means between now and 2023, they're going to make a bunch of this stuff and they're going to sell it. And every single loser gun nut that's out there is going to buy up this shit at the, at the semi-inflated price, hoping that they can resell it at triple the price to other people after they've been banned. And now it's in private sale domain. Okay. And they'll sell it at gun shows for a huge profit. But guess what happens? The ban always expires and then they get to make more. Mm-hmm. So the bans don't mean anything but profit. Bans are about ensuring profit for the gun companies. Let's, if, let's, if you want to make money with guns, this is how you do it. You do it with bans. Let's bring Canada in for one second here on this uh, situation that just happened that I was talking to you about. Because I know a lot of people are talking about Trudeau's uh, response yeah. to the shootings that happened in the U.S. And he's put yeah. an immediate freeze on handgun ownership in Canada. Not, not, you mean like they're going to go take guns out of people's homes? That's what they're going to do? No, it, they, it stated that they were going to, you cannot, you can no longer get a license to own a handgun. Sure. And the people who do own handguns, um, they are talking about the possibility of making it very difficult for them to actually keep this gun in their possession. There's no transportation of it. So it, now like taking your handgun to go to the gun range or anything like there's an immediate freeze on everything. Then we had the R. No, it wasn't the RCMP. It was um, the Ontario Chiefs of Police. Police. They came and released a statement and said it was actually quite funny. Um, he just said, this isn't going to stop anything. This is going to yeah. actually make it worse. And he said, I don't know what Trudeau thinks, but most of the people that own guns, a lot, a large majority of the people that own guns are criminals and they're not getting their license for said guns. So none of this is going to stop anything from happening. It's not going to make it any better. It's just going to make it worse. Yeah. Most of the time when, when a criminal gets a gun, they're getting it because they stole it. They stole it from a, they stole it from a car or they stole it from a place of business. And if teachers get guns in the classroom, those guns are going to get stolen too. That's That's right. So freezing the people who have the license to have this, it's not going to do anything. No, I don't. I think that gun control laws are good. Like we don't. Well, let me give you an example. My father-in-law, he bought a shit ton of high capacity uh, magazines when they banned them back mm-hmm. in the day under under Clinton. They banned him and they banned assault weapons and a bunch of stuff. He bought a ton of them thinking he was going to resell them. You know what happened? The market bottomed out. Basically, they become worthless because everybody had bought so many that everybody had ton all the people who you would sell to they did the same thing they all went and bought a bunch of shit most of the people who collect guns they don't have a couple of guns they have hundreds of guns right dozens or hundreds i have dozens a lot of people have hundreds 
you know, but they, they collect it because they enjoy it. They collect it because they, or because they're doing some resale or whatever, but there's the other ones that collect it because they believe they're in a one man militia and that they're going to be ready for it. And those are the dangerous ones. The, the, every one of us who is a responsible gun owner knows people who own guns who shouldn't have them. And if you're a responsible gun owner, you want gun control laws. Anybody who's saying, Oh, I don't want gun control laws," That's because you motherfucker would be excluded from buying one. If these, if these mental health evaluations were in place or checks were in place. And I want to state something here because a lot of the response that I've heard from people is they feel safer here in Canada because it's much harder in their perspective. It is much harder to get a license and to buy a gun. Yeah. I have been through the licensing. I have, I've done my restricted and unrestricted licensing. I did all of the courses. I have a handgun, all of those things. I just want to just a little bit of reality for those people who think that it's harder to get the gun here. You have to give references, right? When you're presenting for your license for your gun. I had a police officer. I had like everyone that I could find as a reference. I had three or four. Not one of them were called. Yeah. Nobody was called. No, they're, the desire of the gun shop owner, the gun seller, is to get the gun in your hand because they believe everyone should have one. But this is the RCMP. So yeah, you have to do this through the RCMP. So no. you're getting it from they're, them. Sending they're, the it they're not even calling your references. And they just literally sent me my license in the mail. And I contacted my references and I said, did they call? And they were like, no. And I said, well, I have my license. And that was very concerning to the officer that was one of my references. But nobody's, everyone I know that has a gun, none of their references has been, have been called at all. It's money. It's about getting you in, do the licensing. It's like $400 or something for the weekend. It's about money. And then you go and spend money buying a gun. And then you have to get the gun case and the locks. It's all about money. They don't give a shit. If you've got a white person selling guns through a gun shop, especially in southern states or in a state like Alaska, that person can avoid filing the correct paperwork, doing background checks for generations. It right. took, there was one gun shop that finally got shut down. I think it was either in, I can't remember if it was Anchorage or Juno. I think it was Juno because they weren't doing their DEA paperwork and they hadn't been doing it for 20 years. They've been getting threats for 20 years to do it. And they finally got shut down for yeah. not doing it because people complained. But they, the idea of everyone having a gun is the fantasy of the gun owner. Yeah. And it's what they make profit off of. And the government is no, the government when you're talking about the RCMP, you're talking about law enforcement. Who yeah. Too often the people that are involved in those things, they have the same view, uh, yeah. the same lunacy view. If you're a real cop, you want good gun control because you don't want to be up against uh, legally purchased firearms that outmatch you. That's, <laughs> that's right. So that's just one thing. But the, the other thing is criminals, right? Criminals yeah. having guns. Uh, criminals yeah. having guns is at least it makes it illegal. and It gives an avenue for an arrest. Uh for example, um, we have Kyle Rittenhouse. Kyle Rittenhouse is the kid who went to Wisconsin to go to the Black Lives Matters movement because he wanted to shoot black people. But he couldn't legally buy a, or own a firearm in his state, so he had his friend make a, his friend's father made a straw man purchase in Michigan and kept the gun for him there. So when he crossed state lines, he didn't, he didn't violate any laws. He got the gun there and used it there. This is essentially no different than any other mass shooting because you have a group of unarmed people being trying to stop this guy from killing them who was pointing their guy's gun at them and he starts shooting because he gets frightened he was scared he was so scared because they this this these unarmed people were these unarmed black people that he'd gone out to attack that he 
stated he wanted to go kill uh, frightened him. No, this is this is fiction. And so, so, so the idea that we we create laws to make it more difficult, but somebody who wants a gun can find a way around it because there are so many guns already in the environment. And this goes right to the question of whether or not gun control laws can even be meaningful. If you are fighting against, if you're fighting to enact gun control laws, that's good, but it's not going to solve the problem of the guns that are already out there. That's the first thing. So acknowledge that. All right, the guns are the gu the guns are and the ammunition are already out there. Yeah. What you're going to do is make it hard. So why are the people who are why are people fighting so hard for gun control when they know it's not going to be or fighting so hard against it when it doesn't stop the people from owning the guns they already have because of the money. The NRA pays something like they donate in in Congress alone. They donate something like 220 million dollars a year to congressional members to keep them on their side in these issues because they make a huge amount of money annually off of gun sales and, mem and memberships. Mm -hmm. The NRA is one of the, has a, has a very big vested interest in gun brokering that comes from Eastern Europe. So that's a very, to me, it's doesn't make a lot of sense unless you're just trying to protect future sales because everybody who wants a gun right now has one. And even if you put gun control, things into space. I mean, the people who own guns, they own so many of them. It's not even funny. So no one's going to get their guns taken away. There's already a lot of guns and ammunition out there and gun control laws will not prevent, will not take back the guns that are already out there. The only reason to fight against gun control laws at this point is because you want to see more guns getting sold into a, an economic system that already has them, a, a ton of them to, uh, to satisfy what we call the, the ammo sexual need to have guns and firearms, not heterosexual, not bisexual amosexual they get aroused by guns and that's the other issue i want to cover so i want to have a very honest conversation with you about and you, you shoot your gun how often do you shoot your gun how uh, often? not at all right now haven't in a while exactly well you're busy you've been you've been locked down right so essentially perpetual lockdown for two years yes worse right but it's the way it goes so for for me when i lived in alaska's uh, full time i would be shooting probably once a week at once every month at least i would say now, there we go. Raleigh was tipping the hand of where we're going, which is the <laughs> problem. Where does this come from? What's the good part about shooting a gun for recreation, owning a gun and shooting it for recreation? What do you enjoy about that? I mean, you, the self-defense part, you don't need to explain that. If you feel like you need a gun for self-defense in your home, I don't have a problem with that. But what about the part about shooting a gun? What, what, is, what is enjoyable about it? What is enjoyable about shooting a gun? Yeah. Feeling of power <laughs> all right so this is a really good important conversation i love shooting my guns i got shotguns pistols rifles uh for my for my son's uh graduation i got him a really nice ak-47 i mean and in alaska you go to an island you go somewhere safe away from people and you shoot and you put up targets and that's what you do if you're going to go hunting you use a single shot bolt action remington something something like a Featherweight or something like that, 220, uh, 227 or something like that. Something that is very, that is not dangerous to be around other people with. But if you're going to go shoot for fun, you want something that has a lot of kick and a lot of blast and whatever, because that's fun. But it's mm -hmm. fun because it feels good. It feels good because it makes you feel powerful. If this is the only place in your life where you feel good and powerful, you do not want that taken from you. No. For me, I can take it or leave it. I, I mean, I enjoy shooting, but it's not a requirement for my personality. 
And I certainly don't need to post pictures about it on Facebook or on social media because that's not my identity. I do enjoy, I do enjoy shooting, but I understand the difference between hunting, shooting for, for, uh, for personal pleasure, just shooting targets, and self-defense. There are three different reasons to own a gun. And not all, they're, they're all equally legitimate as far as I'm concerned. But, but if it is your only source of personal sense of power and ability and authority and masculinity, then that's a problem. And this is the issue. We need to be, we need gun control laws. I totally believe that because any, any reasonable, responsible gun owner wants the crazy people not to have them or people that are criminal not to have them. So let's plug that hole. Uh, we do not need, you know, assault weapons in being sold to the, to the regular population. That's what's accounting for the body count in these, in these cases, in these um, mass shooting cases. It's not about the fact that they had a gun. It's the kind of gun they have, the high capacity magazines, the AR-15, which can shoot a lot of rounds in a very short period of time, and the amount of damage that you can inflict. They can do that in seconds before there can even be a response. Whereas with other guns, it's less likely they can inflict that amount of damage. But if this is the only place that you are getting any sort of sense of, of power and masculinity and sense of identity, that becomes the problem. That's when it becomes a fetish. And you can see it when you've got somebody who looks like they're about 80 pounds overweight wearing like a, a, a vest and a, and a helmet cam and they got their, their, their glasses on, their tactical shooting glasses on and their machine gun. They look like, they look like they're in a cosplay. They look like a, an overweight stormtrooper, you know, that's what a lot of them look like. And it just, it's, it's comical. But that is the identity they're trying to preserve. It's so important to them. What is the relationship between this and mass shootings? Well, we have met these people in what we call the incels. Incels are involuntarily celibate people, people who believe that their identity has been defined by a lack of sexual experience with women, that they believe they have been, they believe they've been raised on stories and mythology and cultural attitudes and beliefs that say, if you work hard and you're a white man, then you are entitled to sexual and you're successful in some way, whatever you are entitled to sexual access to a female for the fairy tale ending. The fairy tale ending for the female is the big wedding and lots of children and a nice house and whatever, and not having to work, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> that's the, that's the myth that's being sold, but yep. it's also, but for men, it's the, you get, you now are the head of the household and you have sexual access to this woman and you have complete command over their body, their life and their children. It's all you. When they don't get this, they believe it is because uh, they, bl they blame uh, a particular type of male for it. They believe they blame a particular type of, uh, of uh, attitude and belief for it. And they blame and they hate women for it. They think women are choosing other men over them. They believe that they are being forced into celibacy by their lower position in society. And if your only power then comes from the end of a gun, this is when these guys get together and talk. They basically vent their spleen and they get, they ramp themselves up into a little violent frenzy, which either implodes on themselves in, in terms of suicide or explodes into the world in terms of, of gun violence. You, you had, was this the first time when we talked about it in the program the other week, was this the first time you'd encountered this idea or tell me about your experience with this, uh, with this, this notion, this ideology. The incel. Mm -hmm. So I had become aware of it, like more, more, like the more knowledge I have now is from the schooling and from learning from you and education through this topic. But there was a, um, a situation that happened here. I think it was in 2018 um, when, when a man drove a vehicle onto a sidewalk and killed a bunch of people. Yeah. Now he referred to an incel group 
at that point. He said he was part of an ins. He had posted it publicly. And the response, I looked, I didn't know what it was. I had no idea at that point. I was just like, what does that mean? So I looked it up. And the response in Canada from their experts is that this did not exist. It's nothing to worry about. He was just identifying with some other virgins. So he felt better about himself. And that um, it's just a group of men that need a lot of mental health. And then I never heard about it again until we started talking about it in the courses. And the thing is, a lot of these shooters identify with that incel community. A lot of them do. They have the same anxiety, the same anger towards women. They they believe that they should have sexual access to them. They believe that they are up against this uh, class of males and this class of females. They're excluding them from the big party. Well, let me let me back up just a second and say, this is why I think gun control is important. But I also think there has to be a change in the way we view ourselves and in the way we view guns and violence. Mm-hmm. We are raised in an action hero culture where the gunslinger fantasy is extreme, is very potent. And it's in the minds of all American men. American men see their masculinity as tied almost directly to firearms and violence in a certain in many areas of the country, not all of them, but many sufficient enough that men will, it's the, it's the classic, uh, the Tinder conundrum where when a woman is looking at men on Tinder, what are they doing? If they see a red flag will be a man with a fish, a man <laughs> with a gun or a man. What are the, what are the other red flags? Looking for the pictures that men like most. I was exactly, that's what I was going to say. The guy that's holding the fish. <laughs> that's like the number one. No. <laughs> Look what I killed. I killed this thing. It's dead. <laughs> no to the fish. Guys, stop with the pictures with the fish. <laughs> or with the guns, right? Or Look with the my guns. Gun. My gun. I got a gun. You like? Want to go? Okay. Go no. <laughs> Did I mention I have a gun? <laughs> want to touch it? <laughs> That's exactly the problem, right? We are <laughs> raising people to believe that they are somehow in an action movie where they need to be armed to the teeth to deal with their fellow human beings. Mm-hmm. That's the first part of the problem. So our ideolo- ideolo- ideological beliefs are attached have attached masculinity with violence. More, more masculinity, more, more violence. And the more violence you are able to, dis, to uh, inflict and the more harm you're able to inflict, the more masculine you are. That's why we like big guns with high capacity magazines. It's men with big cars, right? It's the same thing, right? Just up there flopping around. Just, just flopping around on top. <laughs> it's compensatory. Let that go, eh? It's, I'm never gonna let it go. I, it, it cut me so deep. I'm, I'm still, I'm still getting over it. I have, in fact, I'm not sure. I need to. I will need to talk about it later. You, you identified way too much. I, I know. <laughs> it was because, because you, you imagine, you always think about yourself. Did I? Have I done that? Oh God. Oh my God. Am I that guy? Oh my I'm God. That guy. I have been that person. All right. So, um, <laughs> so that's the first part. First stage one is this issue of identifying masculinity with violence. That's the first thing. But the second thing is the thing that has really converged to make it worse is social media. Because on social media, you have people who are trying to sell themselves as a brand or as an influence or whatever by showing the most exaggerated version of their lives, either as a female with, uh, you know, lots of makeup, lots of uh, very, uh, 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 that's not fair. Not make- makeup isn't the problem. It's not makeup. It's not clothing. It's the way they present themselves as a, as a product. They present themselves as a product using certain things. And that tend to involve certain types of clothes and certain types of 
uh, and certain makeup and certain body modifications, none of which are by themselves bad, but it's when you put it all together as a package that you're trying to sell to people as an image, that's mm -hmm. when it becomes problematic because it creates a false expectation of reality for anybody watching. Oh, the and, and on top of all of that for the females, mm -hmm. then they put a filter over it as well. Yeah, the filters. The ability to catfish someone. Yeah, it's so great. <laughs> and yeah. also coming from an organization that looks for missing people. Yeah, it's difficult. If, yeah, if you were to give us one of your current pictures and you had went missing, you if you had none of that on because you don't wear a filter yeah. and you weren't all done up like in your pictures, we you'd walk right by people. Yeah, we exaggerate our we find ways to exaggerate our positive features and put them on social media, whether that's our lifestyle, our wealth, our possessions, our materialistic uh, manifestations of materialism, or the way we look. We find ways to promote the most exaggerated version of ourselves to sell ourselves on social media, that our lives are excellent, that our looks are excellent, that our, that our, that our experiences are amazing, and that kind of stuff. That's the image that's being sold, whether you're on the lower level of that or on the extreme wannabe influencer end of it. All right, the Kim Kardashian wannabes and Kim Kardashian herself, that 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 kind of image. Mm -hmm. There are so many people who are influenced by the Kardashians. It's not even funny. They want to live and be that lifestyle. That is what these incel guys are seeing on social media as as what women are. That's what they think women are. They think women are that. All right. It's not a problem. They can say, oh, it's about they're watching too much porn. Well, they're watching porn because they're not actually they're not having sex. So they're. That's their that's their entry into trying to figure out what sex is because they don't have a partner. Yep. Uh, the porn isn't the problem. The problem is the way that we treat and regard sex and our sexual identity and the way we sell it and market it in social media in a very negative and unhealthy way mm -hmm. that creates a false belief about what women are. And the same is true with men. We do the same thing. We create a false image of ourselves online that makes us look better, seem smarter, look more powerful. And we often do it using me the mechanisms of violence. All right. So now we have these two false versions of males and females on social media competing for our time, competing for our attention that become the definition of being male and female to these incels that have none of these traits or characteristics. Mm -hmm. And they think there's a, that they're being excluded from this party that's going on between these people that don't actually exist. That's the thing. They've bought the lie. They have bought into the lie. They've drank the Kool-Aid. Let's see. So it's a, it's a terrorism threat. This is really important to understand. Thanks, Ariel, for reminding me of this, because this is the language that we need to start using. The people who commit mass shootings are domestic terrorists. They are trying to terror, because their targeting tells you who they're trying to terrorize, whether it's the people in a particular workspace, uh, people at a particular community, or the people, uh, or many mass shootings are actually femicides in disguise where they've decided that they're going to go kill somebody. There was a mass shooting recently at a church where a, a, a young man killed two women. And one of them, it was, it was a relationship problem. They haven't exactly pulled it all out, but that, that is very often the motive between beneath the mass shooting. Somebody who's an incel believes they have a, should have had access to a female for some reason, whether they were in a relationship or not actually in a relationship at all. And they express their, disappointment, anger, and frustration in a violent fashion by killing the female first or killing the, the, the male that they're in competition with and then the female. So that gets mixed into the match. Then they, then they kill everybody else that's around them because they're so angry. Um, 
I like this. This is very good. The rough criteria to define terrorist group. Uh, one, they use uh, violence in the name of a political, religious, or ideological cause. That's the incels. They, um, well, they got the knife attacks, and they always are. They all they the incels do not hide their motives at all. I have found that they are very quick. They're the ones who write manifestos. They're the one who who prepare videos. They're the ones who tell everybody in their life, "Yeah, I'm going to do this," and it's because of this. They don't they don't hide their incel nature or culture or motivations at all, either before or after the crime, if they survive. Uh, they aren't committed, but another thing that it makes it a terrorist thing, it's not by the government. It's by committed by young men. These are young, angry men who are disenfranchised from society because of what they're seeing in social media or what they're seeing in the world around them. And their violence is aimed, they might be aimed at a person, but really they generalize it to a whole population, whether it's black people or in this case, in the case of the incel, the uh, women or the men, the women that they considered, that the women they considered to be the model of women that they are entitled to, or the man who they consider to be more masculine and therefore a bigger competition to them. You know, that's to them, it's a problem. So they don't have the social skills to actually engage in a relationship. They don't have the desire for actual intimacy and they're feeding themselves on this constant diet of social media that reinforces their belief that they're actually not gonna ever have access to this fantasy female that doesn't exist because of this fantasy male that doesn't exist. Respond to me because that's interesting to me. It's such an interesting conundrum. I actually have a question and I want your opinion on it. And I was reading an article uh, this morning actually on incels and people who are doing the research on this. And I want your opinion on what you think is going to happen. There was um, a theory that there was less of this violence happening specifically with incels during the lockdowns. Now they're speculating that there was a sense of belonging because everybody was online, more people were accessible, they were talking to more people because you use different images or whatever. You can get yep. attention from women when they were online. Yeah. And they're predicting that there's going to be a massive increase in the violence from this particular group. Um, once all the mandates and things like that have been lifted and everyone is off of the online, um, you know, off the world, off the online world. And then they're triggered again, going back into this like loneliness and this um, desire that they have. And they, they think there's going to be more violence because of it. What do you think about that? Well, first of all, it's undeniable that there were far fewer mass shootings during the lockdowns because of the fact that there are fewer people gathering in large places. Right. That's, that's undeniable. The, so naturally, when somebody doesn't have the ability to go into a public space and shoot a lot of people, that's going to be difficult. What, what did grow up, and this is really important, what did increase was domestic violence incidents, sexual abuse, uh, uh, all, all manner of, uh, of uh, physical violence, um, all that increased during the lockdown. So right. one kind of violence went down, another kind of violence went up. Violence in the home went through the roof. Was Do you very think this and domestic violence did, and a lot of uh, domestic homicides, all of those things went up, child abuse, um, sexual abuse, things like that. Yeah. But with this particular group of people or men, and let's look at it from a psychology standpoint, when they're feeling, we understand that people aren't congregating in areas and there's less opportunity to go and do that. But do you think that took any of that away for a moment like they felt like they were included that they were getting these women even though it's all false it's, it's i think i think i think it got i think it got worse let me tell you what happened it's like a it spring worse. it got worse so it's a spring 
You push down the spring super hard, it's going to snap back when things when things get back to everybody being out in public. And that's what we're seeing. Yeah. The reason why is because their space, which was normally their space and they theirs alone, their space got invaded by the people that they hate the most. <laughs> yeah. And taken over. So they be, I would argue that rather than clumping together, there's the normal spaces where they could go and find refuge. They probably didn't have the same level of refuge. They were getting invaded by people that they consider to be uh, enemies to their situation or the causes of their situation. So that forced them into different spaces where they became more radicalized. Right. There is a corollary though. And that is, I want to know, I, I think we don't know exactly what the impact of the lockdown is yet until we see all the numbers. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of, a lot of things that increased during that time. A lot of, a lot of things that change and increase. And what we're seeing now is a response to that. We're seeing, we're seeing a response to that being locked down and that being coiled up and that, that damage because now they're free to go and do what they want. Yep. That's what I think. I don't, I don't think it, I think it's too simplistic to say, uh, Oh, that preserved us. No, that preserved everybody and kept everybody from each other, except for people in their home for which there was a living nightmare. I think we're going to, once we get out of full lockdown and people start telling their stories, we're going to start hearing, we're going to start seeing films and TV shows being made about the horrors of the lockdown and the abuse they suffered and the, um, the violence they suffered in different ways and the sacrifices that they had to make to survive. I mean, you got people who, who were, you know, going through divorces who got stuck in lockdown together, you know, mm-hmm. or people in domestic violence situations or, as we said, sexual abuse situations stuck in lockdown now full time with their abuser. Yeah. It was not a good scenario for a lot of people. For the incels, their their space got invaded. So I don't think, I think we're now seeing the spread, the coil, exploding back because you push down too hard, the pressure mm-hmm. starts to be relieved, and now it's now it's happening. So, before we end today, I want to recover the the shooting that happened in Uvalde. That was too, uh, that that shooting. The, the the first of all, the one that happened at the top store in Buffalo, that was devastating. I mean, the person just went around and was just shooting everybody indiscriminately, except for the white guy. (laughs) People and he put it, put the the camera on his head and he shot everyone without even any just kind of talk to himself and got it all ready to go and then just did it. He also apologized. Don't forget. He apologized for pointing the gun at the white guy. That's right. He apologized to the white guy. He was there for the black people. He made it very clear. Yeah. The other thing is that. um. The other thing is that his motivation, while not being hidden, it was horrific because it was he's telegraphing. He's like, "Ah, oh, yes, we love this video game style, and this is the the Twitch, the live Twitch stuff that's going on. That's really good." I can see a day where people are emulating this, and they have little score uh, scorecard going, a little point counter going on. Yeah. So many points for this victim. So many points for that. I can see that occurring. Yeah. That's a very big problem for me. That's the first thing. Uh, but let's now talk about Uvalde, where the guy had was on an online relationship with somebody that wasn't. He was basically an incel uh, who was living with his grandma because he had his own problems and they were not paying attention to what he was doing. And he made all these violent threats online and wasn't wasn't hidden at all. Basically, he walked a straight line into that school after he, he crashed his vehicle, walked a straight line in there and nobody stopped him. Not one person. We have this. It comes back to what I saw in Harvest Fest and the one in Florida, the uh, the mass shooting in Parkland, where the police hid rather than do their job. The police hid. And in this case, in Uvalde, they spent more than almost 80 minutes preventing parents 
from going in to go help their kids because they were so busy arresting the parents. They were they went inside, they they got shot at, and they got frightened and they left. And every time you interview one of these cops or one of these people, they're saying the same thing. Oh, well, we were getting shot at. We can't do that. Except for they have all the training, they have all the guns, they have all the ballistic shielding, they have all the uh, authority to do, and their mandate is to do that. So for me, it really pulled back the veil completely on law enforcement's actual duty of care and responsibility in these cases. They have no duty of care to protect life, citizenry, or property. That's only inside of their policies and procedures. There's no constitutional duty there. So they, we give them all this training, we give them all this authority, we give them all these weapons, and we give them all this leeway, and they do nothing with it because they do nothing that we want with it. They, if they were, if these guys, if this guy was black, maybe they would have killed him. I guess. Uh, maybe they would have killed him sooner. Or if he were, if he, they, they were tasing parents and and zip tying them on the ground. They were uh, restraining parents, handcuffing them. If the guy had been unarmed, you know that maybe maybe that they'd have a greater, they'd have a better ability to respond. But since the guy was armed, they were afraid, and that to me is the greatest revelation. The other revelation is. They're shutting everything down and they're not talking. One of the things that came out in this case is that the feds actually were the ones who finally said enough, we're going in. And the, the, the guy on the ground who was giving the orders, they were defying his orders by going in. If he had his way, they would have, there'd be more dead because they'd given up on this as an, they basically thought, oh, the kids are all dead. So it doesn't matter. They weren't thinking kids were shot and bleeding. They weren't paying attention to the kids who were calling on uh, 911, begging them to come in and help them. It was, to me, it was horrifying. But the explanation, we just learned yesterday, the guy who's the, the acting chief of police, he basically said, yeah, I didn't have my radio on me, but even if I did, I would turn it off because I don't listen to stuff. I'm too busy making, I'm too busy making moves. I'm too busy doing stuff to be distracted by the radio. And then they said, well, but you're in charge. You were in charge. How do you make decisions if you don't have information? And he said, <laughs> he said, well, I'm only learning just now that I was in charge. That's what? his excuse now. His raising excuses. He's only learning now that he was the one in charge at the time. The problem is all the protocols and, and practices and the training that they give that he should have read, which I'm pretty sure he didn't and pretended. I'm guessing he faked his training on that. Like a lot of cops do. They fake their certifications. What they do is they say they attend and somebody else signs them in or whatever. I don't know. And they, they take the money or they take the day and go fishing. I don't know what they do. That happens a lot. Uh, he did Whatever training existed, he either didn't get it or he ignored it. So either he's say so he basically said, I, I didn't, I didn't know I was in charge. No, it's in the, Thing. You're the guy in charge. You, it, it's you're you're the you're the shot caller. There's no one else, and that's why everybody was listening to him at the scene when he was telling them not to go in, even though kids were screaming and dying. And can you, know, can you explain to me why, when you are being called as an officer to that situation, an active shooter in a school, can you explain to me why you're waiting for someone to tell you to go in? Isn't shouldn't you just be getting there and going in? Isn't the that protocol, the protocol says two things? One, if you are the only, if you're the first responder and it's just you, you need to be prepared to go in alone, because the only way to stop lives from being lost is to take out the shooter. That is the first priority. And if you're law enforcement, that's your first job: take out the shooter, no matter what. The second thing is, this is the fiction, the movie fiction that gets sold to cops that they believe is that you have you the first rule of law enforcement is to is comes from the untouchables from Sean Connery the first rule of law enforcement you come home alive no no moron that's not your first rule that's not your first job your first job is to make sure everybody else comes home alive aren't you supposed to sacrifice your life for everyone else that's what it says in the protocols every single active shooter protocol says you must be willing to exchange your life for the life of the people that you're saving and if you're not willing to do that then you are not 
to be in this profession. You need to choose another profession. And how many officers would you estimate were standing around that school that day? We don't have to estimate. We know. It was in excess of 19. 19 inside and then some people outside. It was hundreds of law enforcement officers on scene, standing outside, taking selfies and drinking water. And they didn't it didn't register that 19 of them could take out one person and save a bunch of kids. No, one of them could take out the, the guy and save. A bunch well, of kids. I know that, but yes. they clearly yeah. don't. Well, they did. That was the thing. They did know that, but they didn't want to do it. They understood that they could take the guy out, but the, that somebody might be hurt in the process and they'd rather not do that. No. So this idea of the hero cop gone. Any notion that these are people that are heroes that should be exalted all the time, but are, no, they're not. And not only that, one of the things you, com you compare this with is the very honest training, excuse me, the very honest testimony of one of the Capitol police officers last night in the January 6th hearings that are being held in Congress. She said, I'm in law enforcement. I'm not trained for this. I'm not trained for this kind of brutal combat. I'm not trained for this kind of riot control. I'm not, we don't do this. This is a, this was a war. This was an armed force coming at us. And that is the thing that needs to be acknowledged. Law enforcement does not have the capability, the training, or even the character to go up against guys like this. Not in general. There are specific, very specific group tactical groups that are, but they had those in Uvalde. They had a tactical response team, and they didn't want to do it. They had police officers who wanted train, who had training, that that understood they were supposed to do it even without the tactical part of it. They didn't want to do it. The only people who were motivated enough to go in was the parents. Now, this is the very interesting part here, the final part I want to touch on. Um, and Aurelio has rightly put this up here. I don't think that enough people understand the connection between law enforcement and uh, white supremacy or what's now called white nationalism. And by the way, police officers are not black. They're not white. They're not Hispanic. They are blue. All cops are blue. You're into the culture and you're into that culture to protect that culture. You're into that ideology to protect that ideology. So you can say, well, he can't be. He's black or he can't be. He's Hispanic. Uh, one of the most racist things I've ever seen happen to Aurelio happened by a Mexican uh, national who worked as security in TSA when all the white people were acting, OK, we're not going to do anything with this Mexican who's coming across the border. The Mexican guy wanted to prove that he wasn't a racist so or that he wasn't a sympathizer. So he did the most racist search of Aurelio and the most racist detention of him ever. So the, the idea that the people who are of color or people who are minorities, that they can't be racist, that needs to go away now. And they can certainly join uh, nationalist movements and groups in order to create a new identity for themselves where they don't see themselves being attacked in that way. But let's talk about the history of law enforcement very quickly. Law enforcement came as a result of the slave patrols. Once the slaves got, when slaves were, when slavery was legal in the United States or slavery was legal, legal in the colonies and then the United States, the... Um, <clears throat> Slave patrols were generated to retrieve slaves that escaped. These groups of people that went out and retrieved black people who were trying to get away and get their freedom, uh, they were eventually became the Klan. That's, the Klan started as a joke. It started as uh, making fun of itself, just like incels. But then it, beca then it got taken seriously because basically black people, once they got the vote, now we have to control them. We have to control them from the consequences of our exploitation, violence, slavery, rape of them for generations. So white people needed to have firearms to protect themselves against black people. They were afraid we're going to exact some vengeance. Fortunately, that didn't happen very often. That was not a thing that white people really had to be afraid of because the people that they were dealing with were not violent people. That's the thing that is so ironic to me is that if 
women as a group, black people as a group, or Hispanic people as a group decided they were going to come up with a violent solution for stuff, white people would be in no position to fight back. We would be wiped out overnight. But they don't because a lot of them are Christians. A lot of them are nonviolent. A lot of them are pacifists. A lot of them have good families. They don't want to invoke a violent, a violent solution. It's white people that have always done that. White people have exclusively been, well, not exclusively, but 90% of the time, they're the ones who are starting the violence and doing terrible things because they're afraid of the consequences of their bad behavior from a group that outnumbers them, whether that those consequences come in the form of physical violence or in the form of voting. So that's why the South has always had a problem with voter suppression. They always want to suppress the vote, keep the, keep the numbers low, keep the population controlled, and keep them frightened. That's what the point of the Klan was, was to terrorize Black people. And that included the formation of, of uh, Confederate war memorials on the courthouse lawn in every county in the South. Why? Because when Black people came to the courthouse, they knew this place is owned by the Klan. You're not going to get justice here. You're going to get what you deserve in our cultural view. So this, the Second Amendment, the protection of the right to bear arms, slavery, racism, the Klan, law enforcement, religion, these are all things that are, that are developed to keep black people in their place because of the fear that we have as white people of the retaliation that's going to come from generations of slavery and exploitation. Slavery, sharecropping, Jim Crow laws, all these things are echoes of the Civil War still being fought to this day. And that's what we're seeing. And when you see the one of the thing, one of the greatest documentaries out there that shows the Klan over time shows how the Klan's numbers rise and fall based on social and cultural events that demonstrate when trans people, black people, gay people, uh, uh, other minority, other exploited, vulnerable groups, anytime they get any advantage or any right or any privilege restored or protected, there's a need to to strike back. Mm -hmm. The Klan, white nationalism. White people, white purity is being protected. That's why Trump got elected. It was a reaction to Obama's presidency. Then if you hear people talk about Trump, they'll say, yeah, well, you had yours for eight years. Trump's ours. By that, they mean I'm a racist white person or I'm just a racist person in general, whether I'm white or white or not. And I think I'm better than everybody else. And I think the right class of people were not in power. And now the correct class of persons in power. And now they are. Yeah. And now they are. So respond to me about that just before we, we wrap up. This is going to take some time to go through these things a lot, I think, but because uh, it's so complicated. But this history of law enforcement, the Klan, the church, uh, white, white nationalism, and, 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 uh, and the Second Amendment, hand in hand with each other. Tell me your thoughts on that, because I, I don't know that everybody understands that history. And they should, they should go back and look at it. I am still learning the history. I didn't know about the correlation between law enforcement and the Klan. And I feel like I just live in a perpetual state of disappointment recently. <laughs> so <laughs> I sometimes just have to take a step back and process it. But well, when I everybody tells you they don't want you to read history, that's what they're talking about. They don't want you to see, they don't want you to know about the Klan and its connection no. with religion and law enforcement and how that's been that way for generations. And it's right. still that way in many parts of the South, places it, I've been. It, it's, yes, it is. And you can't, or I can't have these conversations with many people here because as soon as you start talking about, I, I had mentioned um, Trump and Obama, like I was talking about this because you and I had talked about it a few weeks ago. And it was just like, well, no, that's impossible. <laughs> it has nothing to do with voting. It has nothing to do with this. And I'm just like, I can't. I can't have any of these conversations. Nobody wants to learn and nobody cares. Like they don't, they don't want to know. Nobody wants to well, know. I think they do. And let me tell you why I think they do. 
I think everybody in their family has, do you, I mean, do you have anybody in your family who is like overtly racist and you were very uncomfortable around them? Uh, yeah. Like how many? I have like five, maybe, maybe, no, like 10 actually. I Two would, five, I was five. going to say probably five. Yeah. And they tend to be people that are my age or older, right? They are. Okay. So I'm, I'm in my fifties. So why, what is, what does that mean? That means that they are from a time when it was okay to talk like that, think like that and mm -hmm. act like that. By the way, these are also the same people who are voting in people like Trump and they are trying to create an illusion of white uh, prosperity and, and good old days that didn't exist. The good old days, the further back you go, good old days means women didn't have the right to vote, that women uh, do not, are not in the workplace, that Mexicans are working at slave labors and black people you can you can you can call the police on them and imprison them with impunity because they're going to eat in different places than you. you don't have to see them. So it was about separating the races, separating the classes and separating the genders. That's the good old days. And the further back you go, the more the less rights those other people have and the more rights white people have. That's what they're talking about. And to me, that's the most horrifying thing. So when you're talking to somebody in your family who is expressing these values, you're talking to somebody who lived that life. Somebody well, who laughed and smiled yeah. while somebody was being lynched. Somebody who was I with the rights being destroyed. Sorry, go ahead. So the five people that I said, yeah, absolutely, I understand that. But the people that I was having this conversation with are yeah. in their twenties. Yeah, because they're trying. They got those are those are the men, the incel men with daddy issues. They're trying yeah. to keep their dad. They want to keep that tradition. Tradition, right? Doesn't that the, the word tradition? tradition. Yes. And I just found the greatest definition of tradition ever. The definition of tradition is what is it, Aurelio? It's um, peer, 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 it's uh, peer pressure from dead people. Peer pressure from dead people. That's tradition. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. Peer pressure. And it's so people. accurate. I I thought I was the only one that got. I got irritated when people would say, "But it's tradition." That was something that didn't sit well. And like, so you just follow all the time. The reason, <laughs> that's all you're doing. Anybody who's invoking the word tradition is, is usually doing so because they want to, re to take a right that you have away from you. Makes sense. Tradition yeah. that you don't have a voice or rights or privileges in this context. So please stop talking and being and thinking. And it's there's no conversation because it's tradition. You don't talk about it. We it's just called, do That's it. actually a logical fallacy. It's called the appeal to tradition. Peer pressure from, from dead people. Wow. So that's uh, what's going on with the younger generation is they're trying to, they don't have an identity now. They don't know how to be men now. These mm. violent men, they don't have power other than the gun that they're holding in their hand. Mm -hmm. uh, they have no real voice, no real intellect, no real ability and no real identity. So they're searching for something in their past, something in their lineage, some sort of something, anything that will make, tell them who they are because their fathers failed so miserably to teach them how to be an individual, how to be a good human being. So they got profound oh. daddy issues, Absolutely. profound cultural issues, and, and they have no real power. And a lot of those people I was referring to, they were also female. So they had some serious issues on their own. As well, well, that is another, that's a whole other thing. Because when you have females that are so attracted to that culture, that's about power too. But it's also about aligning yourself with the bigger bully. Mm -hmm. You want to align yourself with the bigger bully, either for, for a financial advantage or just mm -hmm. for not being hurt. You know, Makes sense. It's, it's only going to get more complicated. What I would encourage everyone to do who's listening is to pay attention to the January 6th hearings that are going on right now in the United States. Because that tells you that the interviews they're doing with the lunatic Trump supporters who are on the ground, who believe Trump was speaking directly to them to take up arms 
and go into the Capitol and kill everybody. They were on a rape rally. They were going into uh, to kill the police. So they weren't back in the blue. That's the first thing. Kill all the police officers. They were going into fine members of Congress, uh, 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 AOC and uh, uh, Nancy Pelosi. Those are the names they were bringing, but they also wanted to hang Mike Pence. This was an attempted coup with a bunch of rapes, potential, uh, attempted rape and attempted uh, lynching thrown in. And this all came from people who believe in Jesus, the Second Amendment, and Trump as the face of the USA. This is not unrelated because they believe, and they believe when they went that law enforcement would be on their side because they believed that law enforcement would reach into its racist roots and protect them in their racism and protect them in their lunatic beliefs in the, uh, in the fact that they were getting direct messages from Trump. The, Trump, the problem is Trump was speaking in general, but every single uh, person who showed up, they thought, he's talking to me. Mm. I have a special relationship. They're all, man, it is disturbing how just mentally unstable so many of these people are. The Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers, they're paramilitary organizations bent on the overthrow of the government. That's the religious. It comes from religion, comes from clan, comes from uh, uh, basically disenfranchised law enforcement and military. That's who those guys are. And and in, and the incel, they're the extreme incels. You hear him talking, you can just tell. Oh my God, they're just like <laughs> flopping around, not knowing what they're doing. But but the, the, the that's right. The followers are just a bunch of mentally unstable people who will do whatever Trump tells them to do, mm-hmm. or functionally illiterate. And and this is the this is the red flag. If you're being told by somebody not to read, not to read certain books, or go or talk about certain ideas, or that you always have to accept certain things without question then you're dealing with an authoritarian. That's why they do not want you to read. They don't want you to know the racist and misogynistic history of this nation. Now, I'm not saying we're all evil. I'm saying that we have a history that we're refusing to contend with. Mm -hmm. The Germans have it right. They put monuments up to uh, explaining the terrors of the Holocaust. They teach it in school. They teach their failures so that they don't repeat them. We in the United States hide our failures so that we can ensure to keep making money off of them. Mm -hmm. That's the problem. Respond to me about that. I want to give you the last word on this because I, I, I think it's very frustrating. It's very frustrating to me. I want people to watch that January 6th hearing to see the mentality of the people who were there to kill people and rape them and hang them. That was very, very messed up. Respond to that, if you will. If you I, I have, I, I've lost all my words. Huh. There's just so many things that are disturbing in this conversation. Um, and it's just all tied up into a very like personal situation that I'm going through with my own kid. Right. So it's, it, there's just so much to unpack and so much I want to do and want to bring into the school system. And I want to teach and I want to be there. I want to be a voice. And then there's all of these blocks because of history that they don't want us to know. And they want to keep repeating it. And also I'm a little frightened because if you actually start paying attention, yeah. not you, as in, I mean, in general, the general population, if you just for a second step outside of your own little bubble and look around, look at the laws that are being passed while there's a lot of things that are drawing your attention over here, everything is, it's here. It's coming back. Laws are being overturned. Things are happening. It's, we are in the middle of it right now and nobody, nobody has any idea. Well, let me, let me, let me say this to our, to our viewing public. If you're interested, like I said, watch the damn testimony from all the different people on both sides of the issue in January 6th, from both sides of the insurrection, right? 
it will be enlightening about the relationship between white supremacy, Second Amendment, uh, incel movements, and um, uh, law enforcement, and and um, the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers. The, just these relationships and how how much they're connected, and the incel movement. The next thing is, if you want to learn more, if you want to learn more about racism in the United States and the fight against it, the fight for, for civil rights and what it meant, it's, it's a difficult thing to, to, to latch on to and to figure out if you're just coming at it for the first time. Here's a gateway. This is the name. Uh, the name of the woman is Fannie Lou Hamer. Fannie Lou Hamer was a very amazing civil rights activist who was raised uh, the who, who was raised by a sharecropper and she was a black woman raised on a sharecropping uh, farm where uh, sharecropping is essentially this slavery got made illegal the slaves had nowhere to go and no jobs so the people who owned the plantation said yeah you can stay here and I'll just charge you rent and you can buy things from my store charge them exorbitant prices paid them slave wages and so sharecroppers became the new slavery All right that's basically what it is and that lasted until the 70s <laughs> This was not something that's even all the way gone, as far as I can tell. In uh, in Georgia, they still that Operation Bloom and Onion they just did with uh, with with the Guatemalan immigrants, something like a hundred and uh, something like twelve different people involved in different farms all over Georgia this year being arrested for that. This is not something that's gone away. But Fannie Lou Hamer, she fought against that and she got arrested. She got beaten and tortured by the police, beaten and tortured by other people, by the um, by the actual. Um, by the actual prisoners, they forced them to do it so that the police could say, well, we didn't do it. We had the other black people that were in prison do it. Fannie Lou Hamer, when she was being operated on for one thing, because she had a medical condition, they actually did a hysterectomy to her. They actually, uh, they sterilized her. The violence that is committed against the black community and black activists in particular, either they, either they arrest them and beat them or they just simply kill them. That is the Klan. That is law enforcement. And the people in law enforcement who have done those things are still in law enforcement now. This is not some remote thing. They or they are they are there as the traditional representative from the, of their fathers and grandfathers. All right, Fannie Lou Hamer. Go look her up. Watch some of the. the just go look her up on YouTube. Go, watch her journey. If you can listen to that and not be outraged, I'll be, I am. I'll be shocked. But more importantly, listen to that and understand that the journey of activists in the United States to bring a peaceful resolution to the issue of racism and exploitation has been amazing. It's amazing that they're not more violent. It's amazing that they have not attacked us white people in a way that's, uh, it's amazing the restraint they show. So whenever I hear white people, oh, they're, they're gathering in the street or they're being violent. No, they're not. <laughs> no, they're not. You know how you know your house has not been burned down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They might have, there've there been some fires and there've been some bricks and, but the activists are the ones who are being killed, not the police. The activists are the ones who are being illegally jailed and beaten, not the police. And when the activists, like, for example, in Oregon, when activists show up there, the police collude with white nationalists to put them as snipers on the rooftops. The police work with white nationalist groups with the with essentially the modern day Klan to do this. Just look it up. It's not none of this stuff is hidden. But Fannie Lou Hamer is a great way to start this investigation into the civil rights movement and why possibly it might be that our, our parents and grandparents are ashamed of that history and don't want us to know it. Mm -hmm. Do you, do you ever, I mean, I have always found a blockade when I talk with my parents about their parents, they just get mad. They don't want to talk about it. They get embarrassed. It's very difficult for them. Uh, do you have that same experience? I know you have a different context than I do for a different family structure and context than I do, but I'm just wondering. Um, when it comes to stuff, 
like this, I would say, no, my, my um, mom and dad have, it was not like that with them due to like my sister, my sister is mixed. So yep. um, we had a different context in our, in our family unit. Right. So it was a lot more open and the conversations were had, but if you were to go outside of my immediate family and get into elders outside of the home, yeah, I would see the, the um, hesitance to have any conversations and just be shut down. A lot of defensiveness came up. I'll, I'll leave everyone with this nugget. The analogy I'll make is like the Mormon church up until the seventies. All Mormons were taught and practiced incest as a part of their religion, as, a, as the elders especially, uh, that they believed that God came down and had sex with his daughters, and that's how they got pregnant and that kind of stuff. And so they themselves were going to become a living God when they died, and that's the thing. Now, if you are talking to a modern-day Mormon, they have no idea of this historical context. All the elders know it. All the elders, many of the elders still practice it, but they don't teach it to the younger generation because for what they call political reasons. But it's all documented. It's all they're very the people who have been racist, misogynistic or terrible people, exploiter, people who have been exploiting others. They never had a problem hiding it in the United States. It's all accounted for in speeches and the papers and the writings. The reason for the for the Civil War is not a mystery. It was all over slavery. Every single time they uh, one of the people, one of the states succeeded from the union, seceded from the union. They made it clear it was about slavery and murdering their slaves. What we don't want is people reading that history to know how terrible we were to know the terrible origins of where we come from because we don't want to reconcile with it. We want to pretend that we, we, we've created a fiction about our history that we like that creates an identity of exceptionalism. And we need to let that go because yeah. we're all human beings. We're all imperfect. We need to let that go and teach people what really happened so that we don't continue to make the same mistakes. And that's true in school shootings. It's true for uh, White nationalism is true for the, the, the incels who have the completely wrong idea because they're living in, the, in a total fantasy world. And it's true for the police who have not been completely cleaned out of their racism or their ties to the Klan. So there you go. All right. Any thoughts before we go? I'll let you have the last word. I apologize for stealing it again. You, you always steal it. Yeah. Get excited. Okay. You're a white man. Oh, accurate. I, I, I'm ac accurately a white person. <laughs> but, but, but I'm, tr I'm trying to learn. Yes, yes, yeah. We all hear you're trying. <laughs> yeah, I'm reminded of the words of one of my managers used to, uh, back in the day when I was in college. He said, he said, Turvy, losers always whine about trying. Yeah, right? You're always trying. <laughs> always whine about trying. I just am be trying. Better. Be better, okay? I'm, I, I, will, I will try. Don't, don't just be flopping around with all the stuff I'm doing. Just get, try to have <laughs> Don't do that. I feel terrible. I feel terrible about that. Thank you so much to everybody who paid attention. If anybody has any questions about this stuff or needs any links, we're going to put some links to Aurelio's playing me out. Thank you so much. Melanie, always a pleasure. We're going to continue this conversation as it falls. Everyone take it easy. Bye.